Stay tuned for Be Bold America with Jill Cody coming up next. The views and opinions expressed in this program do not necessarily represent those of Natural Bridges Media or KSQD's staff, volunteers, or underwriters. My name is Jill Cody, and welcome to Be Bold America. Be Bold America is a live, bi-weekly talk show for those who are motivated to step out with the bold actions necessary to begin reuniting this country and save our democracy. Be Bold America is for those who want to understand the unique challenges ahead and who also want to learn what they can keep doing, stop doing, and start doing to save our democracy. Our future depends on it. The program today is Democracy's Fix. As our upcoming guest, Caroline Fredrickson, writes in a recent book titled The Democracy's Fix, How to Win the Fight for Fair Rules, Fair Courts, and Fair Elections, Caroline states, The right has learned that power precedes policy and not the other way around. Republicans have long understood the fact that when one team helps draft and apply the rules of the game, it is more likely to win. Thus, in elections, rather than just presenting platforms to win votes, they stack the deck by stripping certain voters of access to the ballot box, watering down election laws so they can fill the airways with dark money-funded attack ads, and sharpening, shaping congressional and state legislator districts to give their party an unfair advantage. They cut down on access to the courts, closing the courthouse doors to deny victims remedies for violations of core rights without having to go to trouble to meet the statutes. And they go after control of the court system itself by investing huge sums in efforts to promote or oppose judicial nominees at the federal and state levels. And, and this is me talking, and as we have also seen, the right will go to extreme lengths to draft new and unexpected rules, such as denying a duly elected president of the United States his constitutional right to appoint a Supreme Court justice. We have big things to do. In our studio today is a friend of the program, Mike Rodkin. And Mike is a former five-time mayor of the city of Santa Cruz and served six terms in the Santa Cruz City Council between 1979 and 2010. Mike retired after teaching 42 years in the Community Services Department at the University of California, Santa Cruz, where he served as director of the Field Studies Program, supervising student interns, working on social and environmental issues in Santa Cruz and around the globe. Welcome back, Mike. It is very nice to have you in the studio again. Thanks for having me on the program. It's nice to have you here. On the phone with us is Caroline Fredrickson. Caroline was president of the American Constitution Society from 2009 to 2019 and now is president emerita. During her tenure, Caroline helped grow the American Constitution Society so that now there are lawyer chapters across the country, student chapters in nearly every law school in the United States, and thousands of members throughout the nation. 
Caroline has published works on many legal and constitutional issues and is a frequent guest on television and radio, including noteworthy appearances on All In with Chris Hayes on NBC, MSNBC discussing the Russia investigation. Caroline is the author of The Democracy's Fix, How to Win the Fight for Fair Rules, Fair Courts, and Fair Elections. Welcome, Caroline. Thanks for having me. It is wonderful to have you. I have been looking forward to this. And before we get going on lots of questions, I've just been looking forward to asking you because we have an impeachment inquiry going on, and (laughs) you knew I was going to ask this, and the public uh, hearings beginning next week. So I wanted to um, ask you what your opinion is on, on what's happening right now in our country. Well, that's a big question. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's been a very difficult time, as I think we all agree. Um, I, you know, I, I'm actually, I think it's it's a good thing that we're finally getting started in this in, inquiry. Um, there is, is so much for the House to examine. Um, of course, there's lots of shenanigans going on in the right. Um, the conservatives have already um, started to um, try and throw a monkey wrench into the process of of examining the variety of things that this president has done that um, should give us all pause. Those of us who believe that that, that there is actually uh, some some limits on what a president can do um, in our constitutional system. Um, uh, and so we'll see where that goes, but I think at least we're going to get started on the discussion. Um, there'll be a formal process. I have to say, I think that um, uh, the, the representatives from California who've been involved in this, uh, Adam Schiff and Nancy Pelosi, have done an exceptionally good job, I think, of, of managing the process, of ensuring that there was a basis to move forward in a way that um, the vast majority of Americans uh, could understand and agree with. Um, and you can see that in, in the way that public opinion has been shifting uh, around impeachment. I think, um, uh, you know, there's one thing about politics. You, it, you know, you, you, it's a good politician and, you know, an upstanding politician wants to influence the public in the right way. But you also have to follow the public to some extent. And I think um, the way Nancy Pelosi has handled this has been really um, uh, exceptionally smart um, to not get too far ahead of where the public is because that could actually have been very damaging uh, to the whole inquiry. I do want to apologize for Devin Nunes, though. <laughs> oh, well, you know, you can't have every every member of Congress from your state be, you know. <laughs> At least we have Adam yeah, Schiff well, and Nancy Pelosi, and they are doing, I think, a fine job. Mike? Let's say that's an improvement over having sent Ronald Reagan to the White oh. House. <laughs> yes, well... Indeed, that is true. That is true. But um, you know, California has been doing a lot of uh, making up for that. Um, and uh, in any case, I did want to say I think they've they've been. What, what's important is to understand that uh, that sometimes people get confused about impeachment um, and forget that it's it's not a legal process so much as it is a political process. Um, and. Uh, uh, in fact, you know, the impeachment doesn't actually require a crime for somebody to be impeached. They simply have to be of, cause such harm to the country that they should be removed. Um, and that can be a non-criminal act as well as a criminal act. Um, but that is all to say that, you know, because it is a political in- undertaking, 
um, it's important to make sure that the politics um, are um, are taken care of. That you have to pay attention to where the public is, and you have to educate them if they're not already um, don't already understand. Um, and even you know, with the way that Watergate proceeded, um, you know, there were public hearings, and uh, uh, and the public came along. They mm-hmm. saw. They were able to listen to witnesses, um, and they began to understand the real um, severity of the, the violations that uh, Richard Nixon uh, had committed, which, of course, are uh, look like child's play now they compared really to do. what we're seeing with this president. I, I think, you know, uh, both here and in your book, but your comment you just made is really important, that you do have to bring people along, and the, the whole issue of momentum um, in terms of how you move an impeachment hearing process is really, really critical. It's worth noting that when the impeachment of Nixon started, there was only about 25% of the public supported it. And as the hearings went on, it moved to like a vast majority. It was like 77% or something by the end, including Republicans. And so it's it's kind of critical that we that you know jump in early, get people's interest up a little bit, and then have it sort of take forever. And then you get into the weeds about the details of a particular issue or something. So I think Pelosi was very, very smart and waiting until we're really ready to do this and actually follow through and have the hearings be interesting to the public. Because public attention span, unfortunately, is very short, particularly these days with this, the news cycle. After 24 hours or 48 hours, an issue's over unless you find something to add on top of it to keep people still engaged. And so I think that they've done it the right way here. And it's still going to be a struggle. I mean, there are people, I see this, including Rudy Giuliani, who don't understand what quid pro quo, but they don't understand what the problem is. It's like, oh, and I, I actually caught, I never watched Fox News, but I was like one night I was chip swift flipping through channels and I saw Julie, uh, Rudy Giuliani on, on uh, late night and it was about one in the morning. It was, they were replaying something, I think. And he said, yeah, well, of course the president like, you know, asked for them to like, you know, give him something that would be, he could use against his opponents domestically. Uh, that's not a crime. Why is, what's the problem with that? He's the president of the United States. And Unfortunately, that kind of confidence in the sense of, like, that's the way things are, that there's nothing wrong with this, it spreads pretty quickly to people, unfortunately. I guess when you're immoral, you don't see immoral things. <laughs> it's Caroline? true. It's true. And that, they're really just trying to muddy the waters in terms of what um, is legal and what isn't. Um, you know, I think uh, common sense, most people get that, you can't go to a foreign government and ask them to interfere in your own election on, on your side to, to harm an opponent. Um, but the, the partisanship is so severe and the, the lack of interest in the general, um, uh, well, in the public interest um, is, 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 I think, what's so disturbing right now and why I think we've all spent so much time thinking and talking about Donald Trump in this, in this moment in time uh, is because... This is just so unexpected. It's it's not something that I think we see as as at all in the in the sort of um, you know in the traditional um, sort of dispute between the parties. Although I mean, I guess one thing I would say is that my in my book, um, I, I do actually think there is a history here, um, and that this um, maybe they didn't know that it would go this far, um, but a lot of this um, was sort of uh, put in motion through the variety of, of, of decisions that were made by right-wing funders and politicians um, over the past many decades um, that have, have, have served us up a Donald Trump. Um, and now I think, you know, the Koch brothers and others um, 
can't necessarily control them anymore, and they can't put the genie back in the box, but um, they, they created it. I'm sure they had some doubts when Donald Trump decided he was going to start tariff systems all over again and basically you know, work to try and destroy the whole international monetary system in the way that it's structured these days. Exactly. And that, that, was, not what, that was not what they had in mind when they started this process. Right. No, I think that's entirely right. I mean, they really, they really wanted and planned for regulations to be um, uh, destroyed um, for the air, you know, for them to be able to pollute as much as they wanted, you know, to end worker safety rules, um, to lower their taxes. Um, they wanted all that stuff, and they made a lot of uh, decisions along the way that involved, you know, creating systems that um, allowed for voter suppression and gerrymandering and all the rest, and um, you know, and and so they're to blame for it. And and uh, they, but they they might not have quite anticipated all of this. Well, one of the systems that um, I wanted to get your input on, or one of our checks and balances, is the Supreme Court. You know, in your book, you said calling balls and strikes depends on where the judge sets the strike zone, and I love that. Um, and it. It's really shocking because I I realized that 15 of our last 19 judges have been appointed by Republican presidents, and so you know the GOP has gone to extreme lengths uh, with the Merrick Garland nomination being one of them, uh, and the Republicans have just created a situation where the Federalist Society can control our Supreme Court, and that they will be setting our laws for the future. Um, so. You know, the idea of having a, a nonpartisan Supreme Court, the, just as that premise seems to be a mockery now, what uh, what are your thoughts on unpacking the court or making it legitimate again, how we could fix that? Well, I mean, number one is that I think it's time for progressive people or people who care about fundamental rights they have to actually care as much about the courts as the right does. And unfortunately, we just haven't put the same energy and passion and, um, you know, political capital into, um, into the courts. We haven't recognized that they're as central a part of the policymaking apparatus as the electoral branches. Um, and, and, and uh, you know, so we are decades behind, um, as you mentioned. Um, uh, the, the, there have been... Republican presidents have had much more success in getting uh, Supreme Court justices, but it's not just that. It's the rest of the court system as well. Mm-hmm. And Donald Trump, even though he, he, he can seem like, uh, well, I mean, he seem like a lot of things that I could say, but I won't say in the air. Um, I will say like an idiot. Seems, <laughs> yeah, well, so he seems not so effective in a lot of areas except obstruction and lining his own pockets. But he's also been enormously effective at the courts, and way more so than Democratic presidents, um, and even more than most Republican presidents. And at this point in his um, presidency, he's gotten more circuit court judges, that's the appeals court of the federal system, um, than any other judge in recent history. Well, he has Mitch Um, McConnell there. Um, Exactly. The only thing he's interested in. Right. Well, it's the, right, why would they want to pass legislation? Because... They're doing everything they want through the regulatory process, that is, tearing down regulations. Um, But so as a result, these are people, and this is a court system, that will keep reminding us of Donald Trump and his, um, this will be his legacy for far uh, longer than he will be president. Um, uh, Lifetime appointments, and he's appointing people who are relatively young, um, Mm -hmm. as young as he can get them confirmed. 
mm-hmm. um, and they're going to be around and with us um, for many, many decades. And that is just devastating. Uh, number one is we got to put some fight into this. Um, uh, in uh, if there's a president who's not Donald Trump after t- uh, 2020 election. Um, Progressives need to come together and understand that this is as vital, as of vital importance as anything else that we do. In fact, more so um, because of the lasting consequences. So, number one, fight and care. Um, uh, put muscle into it. Um, we need to have a, a, a pipeline of, of, of good, smart, fair-minded judges who care about constitutional rights. Um, we have to have them lined up just like the right has done. Um, we need to support the leadership development in a way that the right has actually done and the left does not do. I mean, I hate to say this. I think there are a lot of great candidates in the uh, in the race right now, but they are not young, mostly. Um, Caroline, you know, we're, yes. just hold that thought because I need to take a quick break. Okay. Yeah, hold that thought. <laughs> Got an old car taking up space in your garage or driveway? Why not put a squid behind the wheel? Donate your used car to KSQD through the Car Easy Donation Program. They even make the arrangements to have a towed. You get a tax deduction, and KSQD gets a monetary contribution. For more information, go to the donate page of our website, ksqd.org. Thanks. You're listening to Be Bold America on KSQD 90.7 FM. Many voices, one station. Listen worldwide online at ksqd.org and please like us on Facebook. Today, my guests are Caroline Fredrickson, President Emerita of the American Constitution Society and Mike Rodkin, five-time mayor of the city of Santa Cruz. I'm your host, Jill Cody. I'm sorry, Caroline, to have interrupted you there. I'll be doing so at the half hour mark as well. But um, I asked you to hold that thought. So just take up where you left off there. Mm-hmm. Well, what I was just saying was, that, you know, that there's been a passion deficit on the left um, in terms of the courts. I mean, we get excited about so many other things, but just cannot get our energy up to push our politicians, our push politicians generally, um, to do the right thing. Uh, they need to be pressured. Um, they need to put their energy. I mean, you know, look, Barack Obama was not his top uh, issue, um, and we 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 all suffer because of that. Uh, Barack Obama took several years before he really got into the groove of actually nominating people, took a lot of organizations and individuals around the country to start putting some um, uh, pressure on him. Um, uh, He had other priorities. How can that be, that he can't both pursue a legislative agenda and um, and advance judicial nominees because the consequences were were, were grave. Um, and then when when Mitch McConnell took over, um, you know Barack Obama had not done as much as he could have to fill all the vacancies. So there were vacancies that Mitch McConnell could then just keep open um, for Donald Trump to fill. Um, you know, that's not to say that, you know, the, that um, uh, Mitch McConnell didn't create a lot of this through his own extreme obstruction. And you mentioned the obstruction of, uh, uh, or the mayor mentioned the obstruction of Merrick Garland, which was just so unprecedented and um, uh, uh, something that we had, again, another type of behavior we hadn't seen before. Um, 
But the fact that there wasn't really a lot of muscle on the on the Democratic side, that there wasn't a lot of energy engagement, it, it gave the uh, the Republicans and the right a kind of a free reign um, to do what they wanted. And and now we'll see. I mean, we're, we haven't seen it as much as we will. Uh, um, and unfortunately, worse is to come. But already we're starting to see the fruits of some of this decision. The decisions coming out of the courts. Um, certainly, the Supreme Court um, uh, has been advancing an extremely uh, conservative and, and uh, actually very outcome-oriented agenda um, around voting, around uh, the gerrymandering case this summer, um, and, and so forth. And corporations. They, exactly. They let their partisan colors um, start to show. Um, but I think a lot more, unfortunately, is going to uh, become... Uh, apparent in the coming years as Trump's lower court judges start to issue more and more rulings. I, I think um, and the, we'll all suffer. I, I think that progressives have been sort of uh, maybe disarmed ourselves, I guess would be the right phrase, in that we, we've people have so much sort of taken this notion that you have to be neutral as a judge. Well, you, you do have to be neutral in a particular case before you, you know, becomes before you. You have to you know, we're not, we're not expecting people to say, well, I'm going to give Democrats different justice than I give to Republicans. That's not what we're looking for here. But they have to be more open and passionate, which the right has done, about the broad values that they hold, that we need to have a Constitution that responds to the, you know, the realities of today and not be talking about things that, you know, were the reality of 200 years ago as if somehow you wouldn't have to sort of change your interpretations over that. Um, you know, it starts as an institution under slavery, and as you begin to break that down and slavery goes away, uh, you start to have to talk about, you know, what it means to have every, everybody in the society being seen as an equal citizen and to build that passion among supporters so that people could get excited by somebody who runs for office saying, I'm going to appoint these kinds of people to the Supreme Court. Because it's often the case that the people that, you know, even this was even happening when, you know, when Obama would dominate uh, somebody. They are the people who would be good justices. We're all trying to take the position of, well, I don't have any views. I don't believe in anything. Backing away from sort of, and the Federalists have taken exactly the opposite position. They have a very clear uh, set of values around what they think the court should be doing and what they should be holding on to. And we need to do something kind of parallel. Again, not that we're going to have partisan judges, but that we're going to have judges who believe in the Constitution and are going to carry stuff out that, that makes the uh, Constitution serve everybody equally. And that could maybe drive a little more passion behind our side when it comes to these appointments, because we need to have not just lawyers, but we have to have the general public. When there's an appointment up um, to either oppose bad ones or uh, bad nominees or to support good ones when we can get them, assuming we're going to have a different president, um, we have to have people that get passionate about this and can drive these appointments through Congress uh, by calls and that sort of thing. And unfortunately, the response on judicial nominations is pretty, pretty low. I mean... People got excited very much in the last minute around the stuff under Obama's last uh, nomination, but generally the left has been been asleep, as you said, in terms of like judicial nominations and the organizations that have an interest in this and their members and the people they serve are simply sleeping through it. Well, Carolina, uh, this so dis- you said. I- sorry, if I could just react. Sure, to that. I was absolutely a hundred percent right, and I agree with everything you said. Um, I think. We really need to push back on the idea that the right owns the Constitution. In fact, what they've done is they've forgotten all the, the rest of the Constitution that came after the Civil War. There are <laughs> some of the most important provisions, uh, which should, if you actually understand legal 
uh, analysis and constitutional interpretation, what comes after modifies what goes before, right? It makes sense. They knew of, they were aware of the Constitution and the provisions, and they wrote the 13th, 14th, 15th, and all of the subsequent amendments knowing what the history was and, and, and affirmatively deciding to modify um, what the understanding was. And on the, on the left, we are embarrassed to say that. We are embarrassed to, to claim the whole Constitution. The Constitution includes the Reconstruction Amendments, the second founding, as it's been called, um, that put an absolutely new frame on our, on our nation of, uh, of freedom and equality, um, and has to be included in any discussion. And, uh, and yet so many uh, nominees from Democratic presidents have attempted to sound like they were from the right, have been embarrassed about talking about that, and yet it's our Constitution. Um, we should embrace that's That's the most hopeful part of it, is that we were able to make it a better country and a better, uh, a better Constitution. And uh, so, no, I just wanted to comment on that because I think it's absolutely right and important um, to be unembarrassed, to be, um, to be proud, in fact, of what our nation has accomplished through improving the Constitution. I mean, it was particularly shocking when this current court decided that we really didn't need the Voting Rights Act anymore because obviously we'd achieved uh-huh. total racial equality in the United States. I mean, it takes me about one chart and three minutes to persuade incoming frosh at the university where I teach, you know, that... Uh, that, that uh, people of color have not taken over the country, and that they, they, you know, that they're not getting all the benefits of all the programs and everything else. That that's simply not true. Mm-hmm. That they don't hold wealth. You, know, you can go on and on. Now, literally three or four minutes, you have a class of people, some of whom do have conservative views when they come to the university, to see that at least factually based, there's no. How could you? How could a court possibly find that we that we no longer need to have a voting rights act because we've reached equality? That's absurd. And yet, that's exactly what the court did. Indeed. And then immediately all the states that had been gerrymandering and stuff got yeah, the green they light. ran out and they had them on the shelf. They took them in North Carolina, immediately passed a huge voter suppression bill. Um, uh, literally the day of, they brought it out. I mean, it was not, um, uh, this was something they'd been preparing for. Um, it's, uh, it's, anyway, but uh, absence is why. The courts really matter, and although there, it's not as flashy or as exciting as uh, participating in a, uh, in a in an electoral process, uh, it has more lasting consequences because you can't vote these people out of office. Well, in a couple of minutes, I need to take another break, and I know I'm going to ask a huge question so we could uh, com- continue the answer afterwards, but... Um, this discussion on appointing the judges brings up in my mind the issue of the filibuster. Uh, it just seems to me that um, to explain the filibuster is, is difficult, but I'm going to ask you to do that. And it just seems to me that 41 senators represent 11% of the population can block uh, the ability and have the veto power over the 89%. And I think Mitch McConnell has changed the rules on the filibuster a couple of times to serve. I think maybe you'll, you can answer this, but probably um, uh, did so and changed the filibuster rules so that they can just appoint the judges without uh, the minority party having any say. Um, your thoughts, Caroline? And just a minute, we can take it over to the next segment. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you want me to start? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I am not a big fan of the filibuster generally for the reasons that you suggested, that the Senate is already 
uh, highly anti-democratic and favors small states and white um, rural areas over um, where most of the population lives and certainly where most of the population that's diverse lives. So people of color are profoundly disadvantaged by the Senate structure. Um, so I, you know, I'm, 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 I have a, a problem with it. Um, the first change um, to the Senate filibuster rules was actually under um, Harry Reid when Barack Obama was president, in part because Mitch McConnell was obstructing um, uh, to the extent, uh, obstruct, obstructing uh, Barack Obama's judicial nominees to the extent that he couldn't actually get anybody through the process. And so it was a necessity. Um, but then, you know, when Donald Trump was uh, elected, Mitch McConnell took it a step further and, and, and from, the, from getting rid of the filibuster for, for lower court uh, uh, judicial nominees, he got rid of it for the Supreme Court. Um, but I think we're at a point where I, I would very much hope that the Democrats um, do not get this crazy idea that they should put it back into place if they take the Senate back. Um, sometimes they have really bad ideas about needing to somehow protect this historic institution of the Senate and restore it. Well, you know, the thing is, is that the filibuster is just a Senate-created rule. They've changed it multiple times uh, over their own history, and there's no reason to put it back um, because let's not shoot ourselves in the foot one more time uh, because they did that with Barack Obama. Um, and so let's not do it again. So you think Democrats, um, when we uh, get in power, I want to say when, not if, um, will un will fix that problem? Is that something being discussed? Um, well, I mean, I, no, I, mean, I think let's hope they just don't put the filibuster back in Back place. in. Got it. It's, it's gone. It's, it's, it's gone, gone now. Okay, and then putting it back. Yeah. I mean, the Republicans have been. Why would you want to give the Republicans the right to obstruct more? No, exactly. No, no we wouldn't want to do that. Shameful in the in this sort of willingness to sort of change the rules in their own favor, whichever serves them the best, and make whatever rationale is necessary to defend it as a good idea when it makes no sense at all. Exactly. An important uh, KSQD programming note. Uh, KSQD presents a five-part series on the growing threat of wildfires. California Burning takes a critical look at how the state's fire-prone forests have been managed and examines how we can all be better stewards of the land and avoid catastrophic wildfires in the future. Produced by North State Public Radio, California Burning airs Monday evening at 6 p.m. right after Talk of the Bay here on KSQD 90.7 FM and on ksqd.org. You're listening to... Be Bold America on KSQD 90.7 FM, your ink spot on the dial. Please consider becoming a KSQD sponsor. Commercial-free community radio thrives on your financial and listening support. Now, back to our wonderful guest, Caroline Fredrickson, author of The Democracy's Fix, How to Win the Fight for Fair Rules, Fair Courts, and Fair Elections, and Mike Rotkin, who taught for 42 years in the Community Studies Department at UCSC, and I'm your host, Jill Cody. Well, one thing also is, um, you know, I don't think many people know about Lewis Powell, I wrote about him in my book, America Abandoned. You wrote about him in your book, uh, Caroline. But he was a key player in um, 
the development of the dark money taking over our politics. And I just thought it might be useful for listeners, for more people, to know who Lewis Powell was and what he did. Yeah, well, I'm, thanks for, for uh, mentioning that. I think it's really um, it's, it's interesting because Lewis Powell is now considered to be one of the more moderate of uh, the, ex- the, the string of extreme conservative uh, Supreme Court justices that have been appointed um, by the Republican presidents. Um, but Lewis Powell, before he became um, a Supreme Court justice, was, um, was a corporate lawyer, but most particularly he worked for Big Tobacco. Um, he, he was at a law firm in Richmond, Virginia, um, and made his money from Philip Morris and others. Um, but m- most significantly at this point, he was um, very active with the Chamber of Commerce. And um, in the early 70s, um, he witnessed um, the um, somewhat success of the consumer and environmental movements um, uh, in uh, achieving some uh, regulatory wins and some wins um, in the court system. Ralph Nader, in particular, um, was able to bring some lawsuits um, that forced um, the car companies to... um, uh, uh, produce safer cars, and um, and even President Nixon had been um, pressured to um, uh, set up the uh, uh, the EPA um, and Earth Day. Um, you know that was when Earth Day happened, and so there was all this ferment going on that um, Lewis Powell thought was just absolutely frightening and scary for corporate America, and he saw that somehow the the end was near for capitalism, and um, so as a result, you know, his kind of his 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 Cassandra warnings about what was happening and uh, the, the the dangers to the free market. He wrote this memo, um, which is which is definitely worth a read for people because it's not it's it's about forty pages or so. It can be found just by googling. It's on his uh, in his archives. Um, uh, and uh, uh, to to read sort of his vision of what the right needed to do, and he laid out a plan. Uh, he wrote this memo for the Chamber of Commerce, um, and uh, you know, as I said, he was saying, you know, our our whole system, our free market system, is in danger unless we do this. And what we need to do is invest in a long term plan to control power. Um, and he looks at um, different elements. He's not talking about just investing in the next campaign. Um, what he's talking about is how do we actually build institutions that will help us to control power for the long term, much beyond the next election. Um, and so in, in, uh, in his memo, he identifies um, a number of areas. One, most importantly, was the courts. I mean, he saw this. This is what his original uh, major concern was with, um, with Ralph Nader, was to seeing um, the uh, the successes that they were having through the court system to actually force corporate America to be somewhat more accountable. Um, but he also identified other areas. He thought academia was one where um, uh, they needed to um, uh, start investing in how do you control um, uh, thinking and uh, build up uh, think tanks that could provide a, 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 what looked like potentially a kind of a, a neutral viewpoint, but was in fact heavily funded by corporate America, um, uh, uh, and as well as um, as well as the media, um, and uh, and of course the electoral process. So they built a number of organizations that focused on all of those areas. 
Um, and then, uh, I mean, they didn't sit back, but they knew that this was this was a long-term project. It required somewhat uh, a certain amount of patience as well as dedicated funding, um, dedicated funding for the long term. And they actually did just that. The Koch brothers, the Mercers, the, 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 the Bradleys, and the variety of other um, right-wing funders got in for the long term. Um, uh, they were patient. Um, they know that leadership development uh, and building institutions to control power is not something that happens overnight. Um, and they have been extraordinarily successful. Um, the consequences are, are, are visible all over the place. Um, uh, they created the, the Federalist Society, the, the Heritage Foundation, um, the Moral Majority, and ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, the, the, the organization um, uh, infamous for creating the stand-your-ground laws and the, uh, uh, all of these voter suppression proposals, um, as well as um, uh, uh, legislation to allow fracking and so forth. Um, it's a corporate America-funded um, uh, uh, mill for, uh, for legislative ideas for state legislators. Uh, and uh, anyway, so they, they went on to do that. Um, and as you know, since you wrote about it uh, as well, um, you know, they really just hung in there, and they had a huge amount of money, um, and they built those institutions. They're still around. They're still functioning, and they're still, um, you know, kicking our butts in that area. Still powerful. There, um, when I was researching this area uh, for my book, there was when, uh, in 1973, I guess, when Lewis Powell wrote his memo. Was Am I correct on that year, Caroline? 71, Caroline? I think, 71? actually. 1971? One. There 71. were, you know, we have 535... Um, members in Congress, and in 71, there were 175 lobbyists. Now there are over 13,000 corporate lobbyists. So I, it, they just have to be inundated constantly, a barrage of well-paid uh, corporate representatives. And it's and with the think tanks like ALEC and, and Heritage, it's just overwhelming, I would think. Well, what's changed in, in Washington? I do a fair amount of lobbying for public transit in D.C. Um, it used to be that the elected representatives and their staffs wrote legislation. Now, they got lobbied about that legislation. That wasn't brand new. But what's happened now is the legislation's actually been written by the lobbyists, simply turned, put into the hands of the, the legislators who then passed the legislation. And if you start off with a piece of legislation that's written by a corporate self-interested group of some kind, you know, it takes even if it, even if you want to amend it or something, it takes a lot of work to fix it. The basic premises in the in the legislation are horrible, and even having Republican or conservative legislators write stuff would be very different quality than what's coming out of these corporations, where it's just nakedly self interested, and it's very very difficult to put limits on it. You'd have to start all over with a with a different bill if you wanted to try and change it in some way. You can't fix it; it's too much of a mess. Well, it gets into campaign finance, too, because they're spending more than half their time having to raise money right. to get reelected. And so that time is taken to uh, fundraising versus actually uh, drafting legislation. Now, I just, Caroline, I have another question just switching a little bit, um, because I don't think most people know how much their access to the courts have been denied, been denied through arbitration clauses. Um, 
the access to courts, and as I mentioned in the quote uh, I, I read at the beginning of the show, you talk about how uh, where our access to courts has been cut down and the courthouse doors have been closed to our remedies as, as we've been maybe victimized by something that's happened uh, with a corporation. And there just doesn't uh, seem to be any... Um, anything we can, anything we sign anymore that doesn't have an arbitration clause from our cell phone service contract to obtaining a health plan coverage, it just, um, we have uh, to agree to just right away our rights um, to a court, you know, to sue someone in court. Um, you have thoughts about that? Because it seems like one of the things they've been very clever about is is putting arbitration clauses in everything we sign. That's absolutely right. And, you know, this is where, I mean, I'm not laughing because it's funny, but um, uh, laughing only because it, it shows the incredible hypocrisy of the conservative legal movement. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this is an area where, um, you know, they, they claim to be following originalist principles and, you know, they're, uh, you know, they don't make up the law like the left does. They're 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 just following the law, and yet in this whole area, um, and yet in every area, but this one in particular, um, it just shows how incredibly empty, um, in fact, self-serving, um, hypocritical, uh, uh, and downright um, uh, destructive um, uh, they have been to um, to Americans' uh, basic rights and. That's because this whole line of cases involving um, uh, the uh, arbitration agreements um, is based on a reading of a statute called the Federal Arbitration Act. Um, and in the conservative uh, viewpoint, um, that act, even though it was passed in the 1920s, trumps everything that came afterwards. That is, laws like the uh, um, Fair Labor Standards Act or uh, other protective labor laws um, or consumer rights laws that were meant to ensure um, that basic rights were um, enshrined in law and protected um, and that came after the Federal Arbitration Act. The Federal Arbitration Act, which was passed in the 20s, as I said, was meant to provide a route for businesses um, to adjudicate disputes outside of the court system. And the, this court has applied it to every single possible dispute between major corporations and a single human being, mm -hmm. a totally different power structure than what is meant to uh, yes. the Federal Arbitration Act yes. to deal with. But in any case, again, you know, as I said, you know, just like the, um, the Reconstruction Amendments and others, um, one would assume that what comes after modifies what goes before, because that's just logical, and that's the way that um, we what we learn in law school is that's how you interpret a statute um, is just to assume that that is um, that's just it's a canon of interpretation, as they say. It's just because it makes sense, right? Um, but in this case, even though this um, came afterwards, it somehow. I mean, came before, it somehow modifies all the laws that came afterwards. So all of a sudden you say, even though Congress meant in all of these protective statutes to give real protection to people who've been harmed, all of a sudden now 
a, a worker um, who it takes a job and has very little bargaining power because it's, I mean, the whole point of all of these New Deal laws was to give um, some greater equivalency of bargaining power, um, uh, it takes it all away again um, by saying that, you know, they have no right to join into, to join collective action, join a class action, um, uh, and their disputes are no longer um, in the court system. They were forced to give up their right to go into the court system. And, um, you know, one thing that people should understand about a arbitration system is it's not public, it's not bound by precedent, and it's typically funded by the boss. Um, and so any arbitrator who wants to get rehired is going to care a lot more about what the boss, whether the boss feels good about the result than about whether the worker feels good about the result. They want it, you know, they want a payday. So the whole system is rigged, um, and it's not, uh, unfortunately, uh, very well known by people. Um, and, that, and it's one of the, the signature moves of the right. Again, just like caring about the courts, it's something that's not flashy, it's not as visible in the public eye, but boy, is it important. Um, very similar very similar to that is um, knowing about how the rules work. Um, and as we discussed at the beginning of the show, you know, when you get to write the rules, you can really win the game. Well, that's very much the case when it comes to legal proceedings. If you control not only the rule book, but also who is sitting in judgment, um, you know, it's pretty much uh, the case that you're always going to win. <laughs> right. right. Uh, Faith Matters is following this program at 6 o'clock on the second and fourth Sundays of the month. KSQD presents Faith Matters, host, hosted by Seth Shapiro. Faith Matters is an interfaith discussion with leaders from a variety of religious and spiritual traditions. The discussion is wide-ranging and respectful, and call-ins are welcome. Tune in to Faith Matters Sunday evening at 6 on KSQD 90.7 FM. Many voices, one station. You're listening to Be Bold America, Many Voices, One Station on KSQD 90.7 FM. And we're speaking with Caroline Fredrickson, author of The Democracy's Fix, How to Win the Fight for Fair Rules, Fair Courts, and Fair Elections, and who also wrote Under the Bus, How Working Women Are Being Run Over. And in the studio is Mike Rodkin, five-time mayor of the city of Santa Cruz and part-time teacher at, at um, UCSC. And I'm your host, Jill Cody. Now, Mike, before we go to Keep, Stop, Start, I know you had a question. Yes, I, I really appreciated, Carolyn, in your book, how much you emphasized this issue of um, power versus policy or, you know, the issue of uh, strategy versus uh, histrionics or whatever. I don't think it was the best way to characterize it. But um, I, I just quick story first. When I first ran for city council, it was a protest campaign, and I put out a leaflet that was a legal-sized piece of paper with eight-point type, and Mike on 23 issues in Santa Cruz trying to show that I understood the policy questions and I had a solution for everything Santa Cruz was troubled by. Um, thankfully, before the election came around, I realized that was not really working very well and decided to put out a much you know shorter little brochure with a lot of pictures and short quotes that gave people a sense of how I looked at things rather than the actual programs I would implement if I became a council member. Um, We've got a situation now where Democratic candidates are out there battling each other, not to the death, but certainly to the destruction of each other over the question of exactly what they're going to implement in the way of a health policy, to pick one example. Uh, the reality is whoever becomes president 
um, even, even among the Democrats, they're going to have to work with Congress. Whatever the president thinks is a great idea, presidents, thankfully, under our Constitution, don't run the whole place. And whatever their ideas are about health policy, whatever comes out in the end is going to look very different than when it started. Uh, that even take an example of what happened with the Clintons with Hillary when she was working on health policy back then. So my question is, how do you think we, uh, the pragmatic question, which I appreciate out of your book, how much you want to get people to the issue of what can we do to move towards addressing power rather than uh, getting into the, uh, the weeds on policy stuff? How do you think we could try and, as individuals, get the, uh, the candidates in this race uh, from the Democratic side to, to present themselves in a way that appeals to people more broadly in terms of what their views. I mean, Donald Trump never had a policy on anything, and he, you know, he won, didn't win the vote, but he, he did win in the Electoral College. How can we get people to sort of start presenting themselves in a way that will be exciting to, to folks rather than most people are going to sleep over this debate around health policy, as far as I can see? I mean, I get into it because I'm a policy wonk, but most of my neighbors and friends and stuff don't know what each position is and don't care. That's right. And it is, um, you know, it, I think, you know, I would have to say I'm a policy wonk, too. So, you know, I, I, <laughs> kinda, I can delve into those details. But, I, you know, I, I, I don't think that's the way a leader really behaves. And, um, and what people are hungering for is leadership. Um, and what really has to happen is a, focused, a focus on uh, real change real change um, that is going to make a difference in the long term. And that means caring a lot about our democracy. We've you know, mentioned campaign finance issues, voter suppression, gerrymandering. You know, it's the rules. And um, I think we can have a lot of healthy debates at a certain point in the future about what is the best way to um, uh, get, make sure that more people have better health care um, that's affordable. Um, it's really important. Just like we need to have, a, 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 we need to really focus on how to address climate change because you know our the there is it's a dire problem in in the world. However, if we don't win elections, none of that's going to happen. None mm-hmm. of that happens. That's right. So you know we can we can spend a lot of time tearing each other up about. Um, whether you have the absolute perfect plan, um, and in the meantime, you know, we reelect Donald Trump. So, I, you know, I, what I really like to see is that is for the uh, our political leaders to start talking about how important democracy is, um, and and focus on um, how they're going to protect it and and restore it. Um, I would say that I, you know, not. It's not just because I'm calling into a California program, but to say another good thing about Nancy Pelosi. Um, H.R. 1, um, first bill that the Democrats uh, introduced as, uh, under her speakership, um, was a comprehensive bill focused on democracy issues, looking at campaign finance uh, issues, um, looking at um, voter suppression um, uh, uh, addressing, uh, as you mentioned, Shelby County, the terrible decision issued by uh, right. Chief Justice Roberts, tearing down the Voting Rights Act. Um, you know, the only thing that they didn't really address so much, because it's not so much in their bailiwick, is, is the courts, although I think there was a, maybe a little something in there about the courts. Um, but, you know, essentially, this is, this is what matters. Um, 
we'll get to those important, super important. I don't want anybody to think I'm not. I'm suggesting that healthcare and the environment and other major um, uh, policy items are not important. I just don't think we'll have any chance to address them if we don't um, start with um, getting in power and then figuring out how to make sure that we don't lose our grip on power immediately um, because we haven't taken care of the basics, which are democracy. I think you're right about that. And I, the question of getting the public more engaged in how we could undo the damage that, that uh, uh, Donald Trump has done, and it's not just in the court system. Uh, I mean, there's all these, these regulations that have been destroyed, and we have to rebuild those. That's going to take a long time. And I think the candidates could be speaking more about how they would at least get us back to where we were before they start, like, you know, again, totally disagreeing with each other over issues of what we're going to do if we had votes in both houses and we're able to move forward much more rapidly. Now, I want to get further into keep doing and stop doing and start doing, Caroline, but I do have a question that came up when um, Mike and you were talking, and that is, what do you think will happen to our Constitution if Trump is reelected? <laughs> well, that is a tough question. Um, I um, I am very worried about it, um, honestly, because I you know I feel like up till now um, we've avoided a real constitutional crisis. Um, uh, certainly, we haven't yet had the situation where there's been a, a court order that Trump has defied. Although that is um, the subpoenas are start, yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's suggesting he's going to, but he hasn't done it right. Mm-hmm. You're right. So there's, um, and other presidents have have been reluctant to comply with subpoenas as well. So I mean, it's not entirely unprecedented. We've survived that, um, but. If he's reelected, and we've already seen, you know, the issue um, refusing to turn over his tax returns, um, the complete um, unwillingness to consider the emoluments clause as part of the Constitution, the the flaunting of congressional oversight, um, I, I'm really very, very worried. Um, I, um, I, I even worried to some extent that if he doesn't win, he won't leave. Um, I think that's a serious. Uh, <laughs> that's a serious risk. I'm I'm worried about it. Frankly. And his lack of interest for uh, the rule of law, which is a <laughs> cornerstone exactly. of a democracy. He doesn't. He's not interested in laws at all. I had somebody tell me that it was silly for me to be worried about those things because, after all, the military would come in and get rid of. Oh dear! Know, and I thought, well, that is doesn't really make me feel better. No, we have to come down to the that, military, um, and no, that's yeah, not a democracy I, either. I, <laughs> Exactly. That's, yeah. that's not how this all should function. So, so, um, what so I'm, should... I'm, I'm very anxious. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, hopefully, I mean, we saw uh, some incredible um, things happen um, during the course of Donald Trump's presidency from when the travel ban was first issued to all those people going to the airports and, mm-hmm. and you know, a variety of responses. Um, uh, but, you know, I, at a certain point, you start worrying about, you know, what, what's the next response? Mm-hmm. Um, is there a way to have a response that doesn't put us into some kind of a, uh, a posture of, um, you know, of, of, of dangerous reaction and, and, and dangerous for our democracy and, and dangerous for people's lives? And I don't know. It's, just, it's a very, very scary um, 
ideas that um, well I'm with you Caroline it's I'm anxious and it's, and, and it's a dangerous time and we just have a couple minutes left so do you have in mind what our listeners can keep doing to help support um, you the Constitution Society um, what we've been talking about today well, yeah I mean I think people have been um, um, much more engaged in thinking about local politics and um, I, I know there's somebody on the show who's cared a lot about local politics <laughs> along the way, um, but we again, it's an area where I think the, the 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 left has been less active and less successful than the right, and so really focusing and caring about state legislatures, um, uh, state elected officials. After all, redistricting happens at the state level. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we're going to have an impact on that, um, that's where people have to put some focus. So I think keep doing that. That was good in this last election. Um, uh, a lot more focus than we've seen in the past um, uh, from the left. Um, and then uh, to stop doing. Mm-hmm. The next would be stop doing. About that. Let's, let's, let's stop tearing down people over policy disputes. We all agree that there should be some kind of universal health care. We don't necessarily agree exactly on how to get there. Um, uh, single payer versus uh, expanded Affordable Care Act. Um, there, you know, um, let's we can we can have amicable disputes, but let's not um, be destructive of 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 each other. We have a bigger goal here, um, and uh, start doing care passionately about the courts, um, yes. pressure when there's an opportunity when there are d- Democratic senators. Pressure them to actually put some muscle into the to the engagement, um, and I won't um, uh, say anything about the California senators. Um, but let's just say, just like most of the Democrats, they could do a lot better than they have. Um, and so I'd say, yes, start doing that. That has to be a major part of the Democratic, or of the I should say, the progressive agenda. Um, because if it's not, then um, we're just going to see more citizens united in more Shelby counties, and um, we're not going to be able to fix what's happened to our democracy. Well, and, and also, if you're sitting on the sidelines, you've got to start participating. <laughs> you, this is um, an election coming up where nobody can sit on the sidelines. I want to thank our terrific guest, Caroline Fredrickson, President Emerita of the America, American Constitution Society, and Mike Rodkin, five-time mayor of the city of Santa Cruz. I also like to thank my program engineer, Emily Dunham. You're here. You're here. <laughs> and thank you for listening and joining us and tuning in. And next time, I hope you tune in on November 24th for A House on Shaky Grounds. Or No, A House on Shaky Foundations with Jeremy Lent. Jeremy Lent is an author whose writings investigate the patterns of thought that have led our civilization to its current crisis. His recent book, The Patterning Instinct, A Cultural History of Humanity's Search for Meaning, explores the ways humans have been meaning, has made meaning from the cosmos from hunter-gatherer times to the present day. He is founder of the nonprofit Leolology, Leolology Institute. Sorry about that. That is dedicated to fostering an integrated worldview and that could enable humanity to thrive. His upcoming book is The Web of Meaning, 
integrating science and the traditional wisdom to find our place in the universe. So join us in two weeks on the 24th at 5 p.m. on Be Bold America. You're listening to KSQD 90.7 FM, Santa Cruz, Many Voices, One Station. Listen worldwide online as ksqd.org. Stay tuned for Faith Matters with Seth Shapiro. My name is Jill Cody. Keep, stop, start. Stop, start.